It was the first time I, I've taken teens to DC for years and years and years and years. It was the first time I went on the Letta Ken, the Reform Action Center program. And it's amazing. I mean, to bring in teens from all over the country, and even in this generation, they still play Jewish geography, which was good to see. And then we, we did end up at the Jefferson Memorial in the freezing cold with 500 candles lit, overlooking the water, doing Havdalah together. And before we did Havdalah that day, our Emmanuel group, we snuck away, kind of made our own little program where I took them to the Holocaust Museum. And it's a place where we go, every time I take teens, I take them to the Holocaust Museum. And it's not my first time at the Holocaust Museum. I've been through that exhibit a lot. And I gotta tell you, the incredible thing is it really doesn't change. It's a set exhibit, There's, you, know, you go in, if you've been there, you get your little passport, you go upstairs, the history is the same, and it's this static place um, that tells the story from the time period of right before, of how does it begin, and it talks about how policy gets created. And then it walks you through, and, and as I got older, I noticed I was always surprised by how quickly it took off once they had their policy in place. And then they walk through the, the teens and, and all the people of the story of the Holocaust to the very end. And as you exit, you hit this wall, this like a sanctuary where it's just memories. There's candles everywhere. And even though that museum has stayed totally static and unchanged inside, what I've noticed is that outside of the museum has not remained static. Our experience as Jews in America has not remained static from when I first got there until 2022. And I did see, I saw a slow process of it, of it changing. Is that, you know, the first few years I would take the teens there, they would, and they would look in the past, and this is the history of how fascism got made and anti-Semitism, and it was about history. It was about back then. And then a few years ago, and I, would, I always wait for them in the Hall of Memory, and the students would come in and they would whisper to me. They'd say, you know, some of those things look a little similar to what's happening here. And every time that they would go into that museum, I would give them the exact same question. Like, my, my questions are static. I gather them up before they go upstairs, and I say, I want you to answer just one singular question. Where was America? That's it. That's all they have to answer. Where was America? And the answer they come out with in a static museum is America wasn't there, and America knew, and America could have done more. And then the question is why, and then why are we in Washington, D.C., and what is different? And today, going to the museum in 2022 is different because Kanye West... Kyrie Irving, Holocaust deniers at our former president's house. And this is after the shootings in the synagogues. And swastikas are normal now in schools. And so the reaction is different. And so when I ask the same question, where was America? The answer is always the same. And then I respond, but times are different. Because the difference between back then and now was that in 1943, 400 Orthodox rabbis, they went to Congress 
and they marched from Congress all the way across to the White House to go and talk to FDR. And FDR would not speak with them. Instead, it was too busy. Now, when they went back in the records, it turned out FDR had a free afternoon and was wide open and available, but wouldn't speak to them. And I tell them, look, we're a different generation. That generation had no power, they had no connections, they didn't really understand how America worked yet, and we learned that lesson, and now look, we're in D.C., and you're going to go lobby on Monday, which we did. It's different. And that's usually how they learn about lobbying, and I remind them that if you look at where we are in America, it is different, that we had the last president's daughter was Jewish, the current vice president's husband is Jewish. Gavin Newsom went to Camp Tawanga. You probably didn't know that, but he went to Tawanga growing up. And so we're a different place in America. And I did find myself this year that when I said it's different now, we have power, because this is the most powerful generation of Jews in the history of Judaism, where we're living in this exact moment in this time. There's never been a moment like this before. And I caught myself saying, but. And I'd never said but before. I usually left it right there. But I looked at this week's Torah portion, Vayashev, and it, it warns us that power and strength and good intentions does not mean you're going to get to the right outcome. And so even though we have that power, there is a but that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to work out. If, if you look at this week's parsha. It's a profound parsha. You see Jacob at the very end of his life, and he's sitting on his deathbed, and he's giving his blessings to his children. And so it's very revealing the final things you say to a person at the end of your life when you really understand who they are. And the first blessing that he gives is to Reuben. And he says, Reuben, you're my firstborn. You are my power. And the beginning of my bite and you are as unstable as water. You will not be preeminent. And so Reuben is this, this character who is powerful in a lot of ways like we are, and he fails. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, he, he says that if you look at this week's Torah portion, it teaches us how a good life can end up as a failure. And if you look at Reuben, he fails. And, and to be clear, he is a good person. He has the right intentions. You would look at him early on, you're like, this guy's great. All of his brothers are sitting out there and they go, listen, that guy Joseph, he's driving us crazy. We're going to kill him. One person might just stay quiet and say nothing, but that's not what Reuben does. Because Reuben knows what's right. So Reuben stands up and uses his voice and he protests. And he goes, no, don't do that. But he negotiates a little bit. Instead of saying, just don't kill him, he thinks, I don't want this to happen right now. I got to buy myself some time. Instead of saying, that is wrong, he says, listen, just don't kill him. Leave him in the pit, and we'll just let him die. Thinking that he could buy some time, then later on he could go back and maybe fix the situation. He just can't deal with this right now. And he goes for that middle ground. And it turns out that middle ground is a failure. Because he leaves him in that pit, because he doesn't want him to get killed, 
Because of that, Joseph goes to Egypt. Because Joseph goes to Egypt, we end up in Egypt. And because we end up in Egypt, the entire Jewish people end up in Egypt. And we end up in 400 years of slavery where all the firstborn, all the men, babies, are now murdered by the end of that story in Exodus. Now, it's not that we don't like compromise, because he's compromising here. Because if you look at the mezuzah in Judaism, we don't have it straight up, we don't have it straight down, we put it at a 50% angle, like right there, a 45-degree angle, because we like the middle ground when it makes sense. When it's clear between what's right and what's wrong, that's where the difference is. And so the very first lesson that it teaches us is that not only being powerful, it does not mean that you're necessarily going to have success. And don't get me wrong, power is good. We know what it's like not to have power for 2,000 years, and it was terrible. So we like this moment. But you see, Joseph is the one who has the answer. Joseph, when he's at the very end of this story, when he's sitting in his chair as the viceroy, and his brothers come up, and you can imagine how awkward that moment is. And he goes to reveal himself. And the brothers realize, oh my God, we're the ones who sent him to his death. We're the ones who sent him to Egypt. And he catches them, and he says, it wasn't you that sent me here. It was God. You're like, it was God? It doesn't make any sense. How could this be God? Now, the reason he sees it this way is because his father, Jacob, says to him, listen, what I need you to do, go take care of your brothers. Go and check on them. And when he's checking on them, he goes, check on them and make sure they're safe. That's when they throw him in the pit. And most people will think, well, that's a failure. But with the eyes of viewing the world with divinity, he realizes that his father sent him right then in order for him to be in the pit. And if he wasn't in the pit, he never would have ended up in Egypt. And if he wasn't in Egypt, he would never have lived for this exact moment to save his brother's lives. In everything in his life, he doesn't avoid the darkness. He's actually a person who goes deeply into the darkness. He does it when he's inside the prison as well. He doesn't avoid the prison or avoid talking to the people, but he wants to hear their stories, and he interprets their dreams and helps them. And they think he's amazing, and he goes, it's not me, it's God. You see, it's Reuben, he's the one who didn't want to deal with the truth that was sitting on the ground in front of him, that it was about murder and death and killing. And so he went to the middle ground when it was time to be black and white. When Joseph is a person, he could have avoided the pain, he could have avoided his brother's. But instead, he's a person who goes into the pain. He goes into the pit. He goes into the prison. He goes into becoming the viceroy. And in each one of those moments, because he does not avoid it, he's able to find God. It's very similar to Viktor Frankl when he was in Auschwitz. When Viktor Frankl was in Auschwitz, he realized that any human could survive anything if they were able to find the meaning in it. The ones who weren't able to squeeze it and really experience it and find the divinity in it didn't survive. We're all living in unprecedented times. We're living around anti-Semitism like I've never experienced in my lifetime. We were shocked years ago when we had an afternoon teen fellowship and we asked the questions, who's experienced anti-Semitism at their school and the whole group raised their hand. And from our generation, we were shocked 
less shocked now. I was called by the Chronicle earlier this week to find out about how we're dealing with anti-Semitism and how we're responding to it because it's so normalized. And it's unprecedented because how much power and how much access we have. But power does not equal success. In 1943, 400 rabbis were rejected. In 2022, our teens spoke with Senator Feinstein's office, Senator Padilla, and Speaker Pelosi's office. And they were given 10 topics that they could lobby on, up to them. And it was climate change, economic justice. You go down the list of all the issues you can imagine. Voter rights. Every single group, and this is all the synagogues we were with, every single one of the teens chose of their three topics, anti-Semitism, which is remarkable. It's not a generation that is running away but it's a generation that is running straight into this moment, realizing the power that they have and not afraid to use their own voice. Not to say, it's going to just be okay, I'm going to be quiet. But just like Joseph and Reuben somehow combined, realizing that the only way real change gets made is when you're not going to shrink away, but you go into the moment that you are in. And so this is the moment that we find ourselves in right now. And so the question becomes, what do we do with it? And I think the Torah is teaching us to be like Joseph, to be like Viktor Frankl, to be like our teens that are not afraid of the darkness, not afraid of talking about it, and not afraid to really try to make that change. That's my blessing for all of us on this Shabbat, to go into the pit, to go into this moment of life, and then to try to squeeze and find the divinity out of it. Amen.